Minister to us by your your spirit and word. In Jesus' name, amen. John 16, beginning in the latter part part of verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things so you, uh, to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You may be seated. In the King James Version, uh, verse 7 says this. It says it this way. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. Expedient. Expedient is an interesting word. And I, I confess, whether it's stupidity or whatever, I... I misunderstood the word until like last week sometime. It is expedient for you that I go away. I kind of thought that expedient had something to do with being done quickly. You know, the quicker I do this, the better things will be. If it were the gold rush days, the emphasis would have been on the rush. But that's not what it means. Expedient means advantageous, beneficial, profitable. The Greek word, which, whatever, translated as expedient in our ESV that we have in the pews is translated advantage. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. The Greek word is sum pharaoh, and it actually means you bring together to combine things to make it profitable, or, or for your gain. So, if you're with Jesus when he says this, it's to your advantage that I go away. You would have wondered, 
I would have wondered, how is it possible? What, how, in what world is it possible to be a gain for Jesus to go away? How can it possibly serve my advantage to be without my teacher, savior, and friend? The one who works miracles and walks on water and raised a dead man, how am I able to benefit more if he leaves? More. If he becomes unseeable. Well... He said it, didn't he? It is to your advantage. He would not lie. It must truly be somehow expedient. It must be better, not worse, more valuable, not less. Huh. Here's the reason. And, and I'm still not sure we take advantage of this. I'll speak for myself. Jesus was looking to his ascension. And the work he knew he would be able to do on the disciples' behalf. If he was lifted up in the clouds of heaven to his Father, he would begin to do something that he wasn't doing while he walked with his disciples, not in nearly the same way or nearly as effective. And I'm not talking about his kingly work. Whenever we think of the ascension, we think of the Son of Man coming in the clouds to the Ancient of Days, and he's seated on, on a throne, and he starts to rule. Sure, that is magnificent. But more so, the work that will benefit us. In fact, if this work doesn't benefit us, then the kingship really is of no avail. The work that will benefit us is the work of verse, of verse 8, the work concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It is his work as God's priest. It is, it is expedient. It is to your advantage and my advantage and the disciples' advantage that Jesus goes away because if he goes, he can tend to us then. He will become closer to all creation and valuable to all Christians. It is expedient. The ascended Jesus will no longer be limited by his physical presence, only able to interact with people one at a time or in small groups or in large groups. That will not contain him. Instead, he will be spiritually working throughout all the world with all for the good of the church. The ones he came to redeem. With his ascension, Jesus transfers his interaction with people from an outward 
material, temporal sphere to an inward, spiritual, and eternal sphere. The Lord ties his going away to his sending of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Verse 14, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is not leaving them to fend. In fact, he will be more attentive. He will be more attentive once he ascends, not less attentive. And the benefit will extend beyond just the 12. It will extend beyond the 120, beyond the 3,000, to all the church throughout the world, throughout all time. It was expedient for us that he left. For when he left, he became high priest of heaven. Jesus' priestly work is a theme of the book of Hebrews. I read from some of it earlier. Here's another passage we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 4, uh, 14 through 16. Wonderful words. It says this, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, here, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Scottish theologian, William Milligan, writes of Jesus that he received that spiritual body and entered upon that state of existence in spirit in which alone it was possible for him perfectly to reconcile and to unite the material and the spiritual Man and nature upon the one hand and God on the other. Milligan continues. He says he reached this, about Jesus. He reached the stage in the development of God's great plan of salvation for his creatures at which he could penetrate all things with the influences of the Spirit. From that moment, he could rule his people not by the exercise of outward authority alone, but by inwardly assimilating them to himself. Jesus is with us. 
now, okay, spiritually. He works in us and with us. And what does that look like for the Christian? For you and me? Well, we got a new life. Before we weren't alive in the same way. We were more like walking dead who didn't know it. But we got a new life from Him, His Holy Spirit. And, okay, it's not only the new life, the beginning, He increases the efficacy of this life in us as we grow up in Him. That's how He does it. He means to move us. He means to move us in daily experiences. The Apostle John was on the Isle of Patmos when he saw Jesus in his ascended glory among the churches. Let me read the description of the ascended Jesus. It's in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. This is the ascended Jesus. John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus gave John this revelation of himself. To you and me, he's unseeable. But John saw him and he wrote it down for the rest of us. Thank you. And we read it and get to see where Jesus is and what he's doing. I've got about five points related to that passage I just read. If you'd want to look in Revelation 1. John describes 
in this passage what Jesus' ascended body looks like and, and what he sounds like. He's, he's brilliant. He's brilliant. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. This is not Jesus' earthly body. This is him in his glorified body. He's unbelievable. His voice is powerful and full, like roaring waters. Don't get to the often the ocean very often at all, but the idea of roaring waters makes some sense. The strength of them, the tumult, and his feet, they're shining too, like pure, polished bronze. Charles Ellicott says the feet, like the feet of the ministering spirits of Israel, were bare and appeared like fine brass. You see, I, I think this whole picture is, we'll see in a moment, I hope, John is seeing Jesus the high priest, the high priest of heaven. The bare feet's one ingredient. Certainly we know the priests in the temple, in the tabernacle, both were told to wash their hands and feet in the bronze basin before they could go into the tent of meeting. And it's thought that they did minister bare, barefooted. But that's, that's, not, that's not all. John describes what Jesus is wearing, too. He's clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. And, and that's significant. It's either the attire of a king, the attire of a priest, or perhaps both. And I would suggest, and others have, that it's probably both, priest and king. For Jesus served, we know, and serves in the order not of the Levites, but of the priest king, Melchizedek. As for the garments in Leviticus 16, God tells Moses that his brother Aaron is the high priest. He shall put on holy linen coat and shall have linen undergarments on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. So I think Jesus in his glorified body, dressed with the long robe and golden sash, is Jesus as priest. But it's, it's where he is and what he's doing that gives clarity to why his ascension is expedient. Which is the third point. See where Jesus is, right? John describes a particular pre- piece of furniture, first of all. He says in verse 12, On turning I saw seven golden lampstands, or furnitures maybe, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. We're going to see, by God's own interpretation, that the Lord there is among the churches. 
Jesus explains this to John later in verse 20. The seven lampstands are the seven churches, he says. And Jesus will soon give John a message for those seven churches. And those messages that Jesus has for those seven churches take up the next couple chapters of Revelation. But in each case, with each of these churches... Jesus expects to interact as a priest would between God and them, God and men. He wants them to be all that they're supposed to be as his people. So then, the ascended Jesus in his glorified body is robed and serves as priest among the churches. What is the significance of the lampstand furniture to, the port, to this portrait of his priesthood? It, it harkens back to the tabernacle. In the holy place there stood a lampstand with seven lamps. The priests tended to it daily. Numbers 8, 1 through 4 is one passage that you find this mentioned in. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps, shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand, as the Lord commanded Moses. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. So then John, though, seeing Jesus among the lampstands is huge for you and me. It confirms, again, I think, his priesthood on behalf of the church. Finally, John describes a couple of odd things that pertain to what Jesus is doing in his ascended body. In verse 16, John records, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. First, what's with the stars? Jesus tells John what the stars mean. Again, verse 20, the stars, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So you had the lampstands being the churches, now you have the stars being the angels of the seven churches, and angels means messengers. They can be either heavenly or earthly messengers. And it's likely, I think, that these are not heavenly beings, but rather the leaders or pastors of those seven churches. If that's the case, then John sees Jesus in his glorified body as the high priest of heaven among the churches and holding the pastors of the churches in his hand. The other odd thing, okay, the uh, double-edged sword that comes from his mouth, the sword that gives us a good idea how Jesus chooses to minister. It says, from his mouth came a two came a sharp two-edged sword. He chooses to minister by the word of God, 
That image of a double-edged sword in the Bible is not new. One case is Hebrews 4, again, beginning in verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay? I've read a bit of scripture here. And, um, and I think correctly handled the idea of what Jesus meant when he said that it, it is expedient that he go away. And that it was directly tied to his ascension and the work he's doing as our priest in heaven. I'm hoping I bring this home right now. And the application will be very personal. So Jesus reveals himself to John as one among the churches, using their leaders to change people by the word of God, if I've understood that correctly, and if many other commentators have understood that correctly. And he is doing this personally, Jesus is, as God's priest. It's better that he has gone away because now he's more personal. This is important to know. Okay? Jesus uses his word in his church and you and me as a surgeon now with a scalpel. He divides soul and spirit with it, separates joints and marrow. He uses it to keep us honest with ourselves. And nobody gets to hide from him. And the sword which proceeds from his mouth, it sometimes hurts. And sometimes we don't want to get touched by it. But it heals if we allow him to heal us. And I don't know if you are feeling what I'm saying, because you shouldn't just hear this as theology when I say these things. It is, but he wants more of you than that. He wants to interact. He ascended as God's lamb sacrifice and as a priest to intercede on our behalf. His goal is not only to pay for our sins, for your sins, but it is to wash them from you, to clean us, to sanctify us. Jesus does not permit static and stale Christianity. He insists upon growth. And you can see that beginning in the next chapter of Revelation and how he speaks to each of those churches, correcting, approving. Think about this, okay? If it's expedient, if it's better, if he is nearer now and his word is active, he is a priest who understands our temptations. He wants you to change. How should you interact with him? With the unseeable Jesus? 
if Jesus is closer to us now than when he walked the earth, then I think it might be easiest, for one thing, if you freed your mouth and tongue to just talk to him. Ask for help. Confess your sins to him. Express your gratitude. You have to carry on with him. You must apply yourself to this reality. This is no Bible theory. You start doing this, okay? Others may think you've gone mad. Okay, if you verbalize to him. They might think you've gone mad because they think you're talking to yourself. He's gone away, which to them mistakenly means he is no longer present. But they're just missing it. So maybe you avoid talking out loud. What about talking to him under your breath? I do that sometimes. Not always to Jesus. Sometimes I just talk under my breath. And Tracy hears me, thinks I've gone old person on her. I've reached the end of our walk together, and she's not nearly yet finished. Okay, maybe most, mostly you don't talk out loud to him. Although, nothing wrong with that. Jesus doesn't need you to talk out loud to him. He knows what you want. He knows what you're thinking. And you can tell him inaudibly. But there's a challenge with that, at least for me, to keep yourself trained on him. Are you really praying as often as you probably should be? Are you conversing with, with him? Your mind wanders. My mind wanders. If I'm just talking to him in my head, it's different. Distractions. Stupid little thoughts distract me. It's different when you're saying something to someone. You kind of got to stay on point. I'm talking on the phone. It goes, Ashley, can you please quote DJ from Kickapoo? For three pinned cores, six two six, three classroom function locks with the fifteen style lever, same finish, S one strike, and she's hearing me. Probably following along step by step because I'm talking to her and she is listening to the language and the nomenclature I'm using. However, if in that conversation, and this is what happens to me in prayer in my head. If I started saying random thoughts as I'm on the phone, yeah, the Timbler, Timbler Rattlers game. I should find out if Greg got tickets yet. I hope, I hope he did. I wonder who'll go. Well, maybe we should do this often. They like the Christmas party. Boy, that Hannah was nice. What was Carly's husband's name? I, I should have gotten extra coffee. It was rainy out. My mind just does all these things, makes all these ridiculous little connections or non-connections. I don't speak that way. Maybe I do. 
But on and on, the mind, it tends to ramble, is easily distracted. Because that is what our brains do. It is what our affections affect. We move thoughts around. We pick up stray ones and find a place to put them. Or we just drop them again. We have deep thoughts, shallow thoughts, smart thoughts and stupid ones. Some are kind, some are kind, some are evil. Some we get blamed for because they're sin, while others are commendable because we refuse temptation. You can imagine why we need God's word put in there regularly. This is the person you are, I I am, Jesus ministers to and changes. It's you and me, and we play a part in his priestly work. His spirit and word are vital ingredients to making us better. So how do you measure when you're talking to Jesus if you're doing it without speaking? Will you stay with it? Or will your thoughts swim away? Will you begin to feel like you're not talking to him at all, but rather just thinking? I'd suggest start this real life, this reality versus Bible theory life. Start by asking him for help. That's where everything begins. It is expedient for you that he is where he is. Let's pray. Lord, I I ask that you would uh, indeed tend to each one of us here. You know what you need to do for us to take another step in maturity, for us to become more like you, more holy in terms of sanctification, you, you and your spirit and word are vitally important. And I would ask that you cause us, whatever needs to happen, to submit to your process here. In your name we pray. Amen.